Chapter 15 of an Essay on the Principle of Population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. An Essay on the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter 15. Models too perfect may sometimes rather impede than promote improvement. Mr. Godwin's essay on, quote, avarice and profusion, end quote. Impossibility of dividing the necessary labor of a society amicably among all. Invectives against labor may produce present evil, with little or no chance of producing future good. An accession to the mass of agricultural labor must always be an advantage to the laborer. Mr. Godwin, in the preface to his Enquirer, drops a few expressions which seem to hint at some change in his opinions since he wrote The Political Justice, and, as this is a work now of some years' standing, I should certainly think that I had been arguing against opinions which the author had himself seen reason to alter, but that in some of the essays of the Enquirer, Mr. Godwin's peculiar mode of thinking appears in as striking a light as ever. It has been frequently observed that though we cannot hope to reach perfection in anything, yet that it must always be advantageous to us to place before our eyes the most perfect models. This observation has a plausible appearance, but is very far from being generally true. I even doubt its truth in one of the most obvious exemplifications that would occur. I doubt whether a very young painter would receive so much benefit from an attempt to copy a highly finished and perfect picture, as from copying one where the outlines were more strongly marked, and the manner of laying on the colours was more easily discoverable. But in cases where the perfection of the model is a perfection of a different and superior nature from that towards which we should naturally advance, we should not always fail in making any progress towards it but we shall in all probability impede the progress which we might have expected to make had we not fixed our eyes upon so perfect a model a highly intellectual being exempt from the infirm calls of hunger or sleep is undoubtedly a much more perfect existence than man but were man to attempt to copy such a model he would not only fail in making any advances towards it but by unwisely straining to imitate what was inimitable, he would probably destroy the little intellect which he was endeavouring to improve. The form and structure of society which Mr. Godwin describes is as essentially distinct from any forms of society which have hitherto prevailed in the world as a being that can live without food or sleep is from a man. By improving society in its present form, we are making no more advances towards such a state of things as he pictures than we would make approaches towards a line with regard to which we were walking parallel. The question, therefore, is whether, by looking to such a form of society as our polar star, we are likely to advance or retard the improvement of the human species. Mr. Godwin appears to me to have decided this question against himself in his essay on, quote, avarice and profusion, end quote, in the Enquirer. Dr. Adam Smith has very justly observed that nations as well as individuals grow rich by parsimony and poor by profusion, and that, therefore, every frugal man was a friend and every spendthrift an enemy to his country. The reason he gives is that what is saved from revenue is always added to stock, 
and is therefore taken from the maintenance of labour that is generally unproductive and employed in the maintenance of labour that realises itself in valuable commodities. No observation can be more evidently just. The subject of Mr. Godwin's essay is a little similar in its first appearance, but in essence is as distinct as possible. He considers the mischief of profusion as an acknowledged truth, and therefore makes his comparison between the avaricious man and the man who spends his income. But the avaricious man of Mr. Godwin is totally a distinct character, at least with regard to his effect upon the prosperity of the state, from the frugal man of Dr. Adam Smith. The frugal man, in order to make more money, saves from his income, and adds to his capital, and this capital he either employs himself in the maintenance of productive labour, or he lends it to some other person who will probably employ it in this way. He benefits the state because he adds to its general capital, and because wealth employed as capital not only sets in motion more labour than was spent as income, but the labour is besides of a more valuable kind. But the avaricious man of Mr. Godwin locks up his wealth in a chest, and sets in motion no labour of any kind, either productive or unproductive. This is so essential a difference that Mr. Godwin's decision in his essay appears at once as evidently false as Dr. Adam Smith's position is evidently true. It could not, indeed, but occur to Mr. Godwin that some present inconvenience might arise to the poor from thus locking up the funds destined for the maintenance of labour. The only way, therefore, he had of weakening this objection was to compare the two characters chiefly with regard to their tendency to accelerate the approach of that happy state of cultivated equality, on which he says we ought always to fix our eyes as our polar star. I think it has been proved in the former parts of this essay that such a state of society is absolutely impracticable. What consequences, then, are we to expect from looking to such a point as our guide and polar star in the great sea of political discovery? Reason would teach us to expect no other than winds perpetually adverse, constant but fruitless toil, frequent shipwreck, and certain misery. We shall not only fail in making the smallest real approach towards such a perfect form of society, but, by wasting our strength of mind and body in a direction in which it is impossible to proceed, and by the frequent distress which we must necessarily occasion by our repeated failures, we shall evidently impede that degree of improvement in society which is really attainable. It has appeared that a society constituted according to Mr. Godwin's system must, from the inevitable laws of our nature, degenerate into a class of proprietors and a class of labourers, and that the substitution of benevolence for self-love as the moving principle of society, instead of producing the happy effects that might be expected from so fair a name, would cause the same pressures of want to be felt by the whole of society, which is now felt only by a part. It is to the established administration of property, and to the apparently narrow principle of self-love, that we are indebted for all the noblest exertions of human genius, all the finer and more delicate emotions of the soul, for everything, indeed, that distinguishes the civilized from the savage state, and no sufficient change has as yet taken place in the nature of civilized man to enable us to say that he either is or ever will be in a state when he may safely throw down the ladder by which he has risen to this eminence. If, in every society that has advanced beyond the savage state, a class of proprietors and a class of labourers must necessarily exist, it is evident that, as labour is the only property of the class of the labourers, everything that tends to diminish the value of this property must tend to diminish the possession of this part of society. The only way that a poor man has of supporting himself in independence is by the exertion of his bodily strength. 
this is the only commodity he has to give in exchange for the necessaries of life it would hardly appear then that you benefit him by narrowing the market for this commodity by decreasing the demand for labour and lessening the value of the only property that he possesses it should be observed that the principal argument of this essay only goes to prove the necessity of a class of proprietors and a class of labourers but by no means infers that the present great inequality of property is either necessary or useful to society on the contrary it must certainly be considered as an evil and every institution that promotes it is essentially bad and impolitic but whether a government could with advantage to society actively interfere to repress inequality or fortunes may be a matter of doubt perhaps the generous system of perfect liberty adopted by dr adam smith and the french economists would be ill-exchanged for any system of restraint mr godwin would perhaps say that the whole system of barter and exchange is a vile and iniquitous traffic if you would essentially relieve the poor man you should take a part of his labour upon yourself or give him your money without exacting so severe a return for it in answer to the first method proposed it may be observed that even if the rich could be persuaded to assist the poor in this way the value of the assistance would be comparatively trifling the rich though they think themselves of great importance bear but a small proportion in point of numbers to the poor and would therefore relieve them but of a small part of their burdens by taking a share were all those that are employed in the labours of luxuries added to the number of those employed in producing necessaries and could these necessary labours be amicably divided among all each man's share might indeed be comparatively light but desirable as such an amicable division would undoubtedly be i cannot conceive any practical principle according to which it could take place it has been shown that the spirit of benevolence guided by the strict impartial justice that mr godwin describes would if vigorously acted upon depress in want and misery the whole human race let us examine what would be the consequence if the proprietor were to retain a decent share for himself but to give the rest away to the poor without exacting a task from them in return not to mention the idleness and the vice that such a proceeding if general would probably create in the present state of society and the great risk there would be of diminishing the produce of land as well as the labours of luxury another objection yet remains mr godwin seems to have but little respect for practical principles but i own it appears to me that he is a much greater benefactor to mankind who points out how an inferior good may be attained than he who merely expatiates on the deformity of the present state of society and the beauty of a different state without pointing out a practical method that might be immediately applied of accelerating our advances from the one to the other it has appeared that from the principle of population more will always be in want than can be adequately supplied the surplus of the rich man might be sufficient for three but four will be desirous to obtain it he cannot make this selection of three out of the four without conferring a great favour on those that are the objects of his choice these persons must consider themselves as under a great obligation to him and as dependent upon him for their support the rich man would feel his power and the poor man his dependence and the evil effects of these two impressions on the human heart are well known though i perfectly agree with mr godwin therefore in the evil of hard labour yet i still think it a less evil and less calculated to debase the human mind than dependence and every history of man that we have ever read places in a strong point of view the danger to which that mind is exposed which is entrusted with constant power 
In the present state of things, and particularly when labour is in request, the man who does a day's work for me confers full as great an obligation upon me as I do upon him. I possess what he wants, he possesses what I want. We make an amicable exchange. The poor man walks erect in conscious independence, and the mind of his employer is not vitiated by a sense of power. Three or four hundred years ago, there was undoubtedly much less labour in England, in proportion to the population, than at present. But there was much more dependence, and we probably should not now enjoy our present degree of civil liberty if the poor, by the introduction of manufactures, had not been enabled to give something in exchange for the provision of the great lords, instead of being dependent upon their bounty. Even the greatest enemies of trade and manufactures, and I do not reckon myself a determined friend to them, must allow that when they were introduced into England, liberty came in their train. Nothing that has been said tends in the most remote degree to undervalue the principle of benevolence. It is one of the noblest and most godlike qualities of the human heart, generated perhaps slowly and gradually from self-love, and afterwards intended to act as a general law, whose kind office it should be to soften the partial deformities, to correct the asperities, and to smooth the wrinkles of its parent. This seems to be the analogue of all nature. Perhaps there is no one general law of nature that will not appear, to us at least, to produce partial evil, and we frequently observe at the same time some bountiful provision which, acting as another general law, corrects the inequalities of the first. The proper office of benevolence is to soften the partial evils arising from self-love, but it can never be substituted in its place. If no man were to allow himself to act till he had completely determined that the action he was about to perform was more conducive than any other to the general good, the most enlightened minds would hesitate in perplexity and amazement, and the unenlightened would be continually committing the grossest mistakes. As Mr. Godwin, therefore, has not laid down any practical principles according to which the necessary labours of agriculture might be amicably shared among the whole class of labourers, by general invectives against employing the poor, he appears to pursue an unattainable good through much present evil. For if every man who employs the poor ought to be considered as their enemy, and as adding to the weight of their oppressions, and if the miser is for this reason to be preferred to the man who spends his income, it follows that any number of men who now spend their incomes might, to the advantage of society, be converted into misers. Suppose then that a hundred thousand persons who now employ ten men each were to lock up their wealth from general use. It is evident that a million of working men of different kinds would be completely thrown out of all employment. The extensive misery that such an event would produce in the present state of society, Mr. Godwin himself could hardly refuse to acknowledge, and I question whether he might not find some difficulty in proving that a conduct of this kind tended more than the conduct of those who spend their incomes to, quote, place human beings in the condition in which they ought to be placed, end quote. But Mr. Godwin says that the miser really locks up nothing, that the point has not been rightly understood, and that the true development and definition of the nature of wealth have not been applied to illustrate it. Having defined, therefore, wealth, very justly, to be the commodities raised and fostered by human labour, he observes that the miser locks up neither corn, nor oxen, nor clothes, nor houses. Undoubtedly, he does not really lock up these articles, but he locks up the power of producing them, which is virtually the same. These things are certainly used and consumed by his contemporaries, as truly and to as great an extent as if he were a beggar, but not to as great an extent as if he had employed his wealth in turning up more land, 
in breeding more oxen, in employing more tailors, and in building more houses. But supposing, for a moment, that the conduct of the miser did not tend to check any really useful produce, how are all those who are thrown out of employment to obtain patents which they may show in order to be awarded a proper share of the food and raiment produced by the society? This is the unconquerable difficulty. I am perfectly willing to concede to Mr. Godwin that there is much more labour in the world than is really necessary, and that if the lower classes of society could agree among themselves never to work more than six or seven hours in the day, the commodities essential to human happiness might still be produced in as great abundance as present. But it is almost impossible to conceive that such an agreement could be adhered to. From the principle of population, some would necessarily be more in want than others. Those that had large families would naturally be desirous of exchanging two hours more of their labour for an ampler quantity of subsistence. How are they to be prevented from making this exchange? It would be a violation of the first and most sacred property that a man possesses to attempt, by positive institutions, to interfere with his command over his own labour. Till Mr. Godwin, therefore, can point out some practical plan according to which the necessary labour in a society might be equitably divided, his invectives against labour, if they were attended to, would certainly produce much present evil without approximating us to that state of cultivated equality to which he looks forward as his polar star, and which he seems to think should at present be our guide in determining the nature and tendency of human actions. A mariner guided by such a polar star is in danger of shipwreck. Perhaps there is no possible way in which wealth could in general be employed so beneficially to a state, and particularly to the lower orders of it, as by improving and rendering productive that land which, to a farmer, would not answer the expense of cultivation. Had Mr. Godwin exerted his energetic eloquence in painting the superior worth and usefulness of the character who employed the poor in this way, to him who employed them in narrow luxuries, every enlightened man must have applauded his efforts the increasing demand for agricultural labour must always tend to better the condition of the poor, and if the accession of work be of this kind, so far is it from being true that the poor would be obliged to work ten hours for the same price that they before worked eight, that the very reverse would be the fact, and a labourer might then support his wife and family as well by the labour of six hours as he could before by the labour of eight. The labour created by luxuries, though useful in distributing the produce of the country, without vitiating the proprietor by power, or debasing the labourer by dependence, has not, indeed, the same beneficial effect on the state of the poor. A great accession of work from manufacturers, though it may raise the price of labour even more than an increasing demand for agricultural labour, yet, as in this case the quantity of food in the country may not be proportionably increasing, the advantage to the poor will be but temporary, as the price of the provisions must necessarily rise in proportion to the price of labour. Relative to this subject, I cannot avoid venturing a few remarks on a part of Dr. Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, speaking at the same time with that diffidence which I ought certainly to feel in differing from a person so justly celebrated in the political world. End of chapter 15 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards